Imagine this. It's the year 1850. You're out for a stroll when I stop you and declare that I have the solution to almost every problem in our society. Violence against women and children. Unemployment. Moral and religious impurity. Disease and poverty. You stop and listen because, hey, that sure sounds like a one-size-fits-all solution. That solution is alcohol. Or, actually, the lack of. I'm a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and I'm advocating for Prohibition. Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. The Devil's Drink Giggle juice, booze, no matter what you call it, PEI has more than its fair share of drinking stories. Here's one. Urban legend says that the first House of Assembly meeting in 1773 took place in the Cross Keys Tavern in Charlottetown. Politicians drinking on the job? It may be more common than you think in the 1700s. Despite this promising start, booze didn't always have official approval on the island, In fact, for almost 70 years, alcohol was illegal on PEI. You wouldn't know it today, judging by your many bars, liquor stores, and even a moonshine distillery. But from 1878 until 1948, different laws kept many islanders from getting a drink. Well, a legal drink. Illegally, many islanders knew where to go or how to make their own alcohol. And I think those are some of the best drinking stories hidden in our history. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the 1820s, when whispers of prohibition began. Island churches helped spearhead a movement to eradicate this evil liquor from society. And you know, alcohol abuse was definitely prominent back then. People believed prohibition might solve some of society's problems. Here's a frame of reference so you can understand. By 1825, the island had around 25,000 people. According to official statistics... In one year, these islanders consumed 54,000 gallons of rum, 2,500 gallons of brandy, 3,000 gallons of gin, and 2,000 gallons of wine. Oh, and beer wasn't counted in these official statistics. I'll leave it to you to decide if that's a lot, but remember that these numbers were spread over the whole population, which included children. Moving on. This idea of alcohol abstinence continues to gain traction until the 1850s when a temperance bill is brought into the provincial legislature. PEI Premier George Coles rejects it, saying that it infringes on the rights of individuals and society at large. George Coles is a brewer himself, so maybe he was a little biased in his decision-making. But that's just my two cents. But people against alcohol consumption don't give up. By the 1870s, prohibition isn't just a whisper— It's a pounding knock on your door, or a stern lecture in church, determined to make you change. By now, there were countless organizations against alcohol. Churches, the Sons of Temperance, the British Order of Good Templars, Reform Clubs, the YMCA, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, just to name a few. Women were crucial in making sure prohibition was enacted, even though they couldn't vote or become politicians at this time. The Women's Christian Temperance Union is the largest women's organization in Canada at the time by far. 
That's Heidi McDonald, Dean of Arts with UMB St. John. She's originally from PEI up west. I asked her how prohibition and women's suffrage on PEI were related. In case you don't already know, women's suffrage began in the mid-1800s, and it was a movement advocating for the right of women to vote in elections. When Heidi talks about the Women's Christian Temperance Union, they're also known as the WCTU. They weren't originally in favor of suffrage. The WCTU, uh, for their first approximately 15 years, were actually, they spoke against suffrage. It wasn't their point. Their point was temperance and prohibition. But they eventually, in 1891, they did take on a suffrage, a pro-suffrage stance. And the rationale was that until women had the vote, they wouldn't be able to vote for prohibition. They argued that male politicians were never going to pass a bill to make prohibition required. Only women would do this. This was the rationale behind the WCTU taking a pro-suffrage stance in 1891. If you know your prohibition history already, you'll remember that PEI was dry of alcohol beginning in 1878. That doesn't add up if the WCTU was still lobbying in 1891. Well, 1878 saw the introduction of the Canada Temperance Act, which is a federal bill. In this bill, a federal riding had to vote in prohibition through a plebiscite. There were four federal districts on the island, Kings County, Queens County, Prince County, and the capital city of Charlottetown. Each would choose to enact or avoid prohibition. Even if they voted in prohibition... Three years later, the citizens could vote it out again, and this cycle would repeat. This happened twice in Charlottetown. In 1891 and 1897, they voted Prohibition out. So many island prohibitionists wanted a stricter bill that would force all of PEI to become dry, with no easy way out. And women were at the forefront, with organizations like the WCTU advocating for women's suffrage in order to accomplish true prohibition on PEI. But prohibition would come a lot sooner than the vote for women. In 1900, PEI had prohibition, far ahead of any other province. And therefore, the WCTU didn't have, or other groups didn't have the leverage to say, we need suffrage in order to vote in prohibition. They already had prohibition. So that, that argument is, fell in on itself. And suffrage did take longer to get in PEI than in the other maritime provinces. I believe that that's a strong component. And there's something, uh, a less tangible argument around that as well. And that's that because prohibition is associated more with women, it's true, both men and women fought for prohibition, no question. But there's a, I think there's a stronger association with women. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if PEI women didn't say to themselves, well, we got prohibition without the vote. So maybe we don't need the vote, Like maybe the vote isn't everything. Maybe we, we can continue to get what we want uh, through lobbying our politicians and other strategies, informal strategies. The Prohibition Act came into effect in June 1901 and women wouldn't get the right to vote in provincial elections until 1922. Just to note here that I'm talking about white women Many women of color, specifically Indigenous women, weren't able to vote until decades later. In any case, prohibition came into full force. No buying, drinking, making, or selling alcohol, unless it was to be exported. Any drinks over 2.75% were banned. 
PEI was the first province to enact its own prohibition law, but many others soon followed. In PEI, prohibition remained in place until 1948. There were many amendments to the law over the years, but they're kind of tedious to understand. For time's sake, I'll be leaving that part out. But here's the interesting part. Prohibition wasn't well enforced. Uh, my name is Reginald Dutch Thompson, uh, and uh, I have been going around for about 35 years or so uh, with my little uh, tape deck uh, and my microphone interviewing folks born between 1895 and, for the most part, 1925. I talked to Dutch for over an hour, and I don't think we even scratched the surface of the stories he's heard about Prohibition. He told me about a way some islanders would bend the law. They'd go to a script doctor. Script is short for prescription, and uh, if you had bad nerves, you would you go to the doctor and you'd say, "I have bad nerves. I can't sleep at night, or I'm having problems, you know, concentrating." And he would recommend that maybe two uh, bottles of whiskey a week or two bottles of rum a week would uh, solve your problem. There were allowances in the law where doctors could write a prescription of alcohol for a patient. So while it was legal, not every doctor made sure the patient actually needed liquor for medical reasons. There was, uh, there was a doctor in Mount Stewart, in fact, who was known as a, as a uh, script doctor. And I had a friend, who, or a friend, he was, he, he was an older gentleman that, from Mount Stewart I interviewed. And when he was a kid in the 1920s, because that was a junction where the trains would come up from Charlottetown on the way to Surrey or then down on the way to Georgetown or on the way to Murray Harbor. So there, there were several trains going through there every day. And one had had a conductor on it that uh, would, uh, when the train slowed down, this young fellow as a kid would run along the train and the conductor would pass him a, a $2 bill and a quarter. And he would run down to the doctor in, in Mount Stewart, and when the train stopped and was getting oiled up and, and watered up and whatever, letting the passengers on and off, by the time it was, it was heading out again, the kid had come back with the script from the doctor. The guy himself didn't even go. It was the kid who went, and he would pass him the script, and he would go to Syria, and he, he would buy his liquor, and, and the kid had 25 cents. And that happened three times a week, because that train went through there three times a week. And so the kid made 75 cents a week you know, doing that. So, so in, in some cases, you didn't even have to uh, actually physically be at the, at the doctor's and you were going to get your script anyway. That was one way to cheat the system, if you could find a willing doctor. There were two other main ways to get alcohol on the island during Prohibition, rum running and homemade moonshine. The rum runners uh, were primarily responsible for bringing the liquor to the island. And they would, they would go offshore, and a local fishermen or whatever, whoever had a boat, would go out and uh, make their purchase and take it back to shore. Uh, you know, all the while being pretty careful because revenue officers and customs agents were always on the lookout. That's Clint Morrison, author of a book titled Booze, a social account of prohibition on Prince Edward Island. Clint said many fishermen joined the rum running industry. Although for some it was a survival decision, more than a desire to drink. Hard times hit the fishing industry in the 20s, and uh, there was no money much to be made until Prohibition in the United States started in 1920. And then it became very lucrative to sell the Americans' liquor. So that was the biggest reason that a lot of fishermen turned from fishing to rum running. Here's how an evening with the rum runners might go, based on what I read in Clint's book and heard from Dutch. First... Trick the authorities. What they would do very often was phone the Mounties or phone the prohibition officers and say, I was listening in on the phone. 
on the party line and and they're going to land a big load of rum on so-and-so shore, you know, down the road in, in you know, New Frege, probably nine o'clock at night. And so the Mounties and the prohibition officers were all roar down there and sit in the bushes and wait. Meanwhile, the actual rum was being landed uh, 10 miles down the road in Campbell's Cove. Then you wait for the signal. They would know that on Tuesdays and Fridays you were going to see the, let's say, the Nellie J. Banks was going to be cruising by at nine o'clock at night. And the Nellie J. Banks, as an example, used to keep perfectly white sails so that they could hold a lantern up in the sail and then you could see it uh, three miles inland, you know, from your farmhouse. And then you would know you could, you know, putt-putt out and get your booze. So you start the engine in your dory and you head out to find the rum running boat. These vessels wouldn't dare dock because they knew authorities were waiting to catch them. But until 1928, any boat more than three miles out from shore wasn't subject to Canada's territorial agreement. That means the provincial government couldn't stop and search them. And so you would go out with your little fishing boat with the make and break engine, putt, 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 putt. And you go out to the three mile limit and you'd, and you'd get your rum and come back in. Coming back in, you had to be careful in case your tip-off didn't work and authorities were waiting. And there were uh, patrol boats. One was the SS Alma, the ULNA, that went back and forth. It was actually stationed in Picto, but it was over here on, on a regular basis. One of the problems with the Alma, it, it was coal-fired, and so there was black smoke. When they fired it up, you could see this column of black smoke five miles away, and so that gave everybody a chance. If you were inside the three-mile limit, you could sneak back out over the line. In 1928, the law changed and that three-mile limit became 12 miles. However, it only applied to Canadian registered vessels. So if you could register your ship in Newfoundland or somewhere else not considered part of Canada, you could still work around the law. By the time it was a 12-mile limit, things had slowed down considerably in in the rum business. All right, so you have your liquor. You can drink and you can get drunk. But you still had to find a way to hide it in case authorities searched your property. Even if you made moonshine, you had to make sure your homemade still and the alcohol couldn't be found. I heard so many stories from Clint and Dutch about this. You'd hide a barrel of rum in a manure pile on a farm because no one wants to search through that. You'd put it in a trap door underneath an angry bull. Your moonshine still would be out in the woods away from the prying eyes of your neighbor. But some people got even more inventive. One of the guys uh, used to have his wife, they had, had a big flower pot, uh, like a tire, on the front lawn, and he had dug a hole underneath it, and that's where he used to hide his liquor. And so the cops would come, and they'd, they'd know that he had had uh, a, a, there was a load, one of the rum boats had come in, and they figured he was one of the guys out getting liquor off it. And so they'd search everywhere, the burns, and they'd do everything. They, and when they're leaving, they, they'd say, beautiful flowers, missus, beautiful flowers, not known and hidden underneath the flowers. One fellow used to put all the liquor in a, in a big barrel up in his attic, and then he ran a pipe down through the ceiling, and if you unscrewed one of the bulbs in the chandelier, it was the, it was the end of the pipe, and uh, liquor came out. That was one of the ways that he was hiding it. So when the cops came to look, they'd look all over the house. They wouldn't bother going up and crawling through the attic. So let's say you didn't want to risk going to the rum running boats or even stocking liquor at home, whether that's moonshine or liquor imported illegally. You could still find a drink at your local speakeasy if you knew where the nearest one was. There were tons back in the 20th century, and they were hidden in plain sight. 
well, they call the, the liquor establishments, illegal ones were called speakeasies, and uh, you had to have a password to, to get in, and you had a certain number of knocks, depending on where the, the establishment was. There was always somebody outside keeping an eye out for customs preventive officers or police in case they were on, on the rounds. You know, all this talk makes it sound like no one followed prohibition. The problem is it's hard to get a clear picture because when you're doing it right, no record should exist saying you were making, drinking, or selling alcohol. I asked Clinton Dutch to give a ballpark of how many people cheated prohibition and kept drinking. I would say that probably at least a quarter of the population continued to drink after prohibition came in, getting it illegally one way or another. Dutch was a little bolder in his estimate. As many people as before and as many people after. By the 1930s, every province except PEI had gotten rid of their prohibition laws. Islanders, however, persevered until 1948. I think PEI has tended to be more conservative, small c, than the rest of Canada through, through time. And that's probably one reason why they held on to the law longer. In any case, change did come eventually. Here's a few factors that may have contributed to the prohibition's demise. First, you had soldiers coming back from fighting in World War II in Europe. And uh, liquor was everywhere there. It was nothing to go into a bar or a pub or whatever and get a drink and so what, no big deal. But when they came back to Canada, attitudes toward liquor they took with them. And they said, well, this really isn't fair. This is not right. This is dumb, you know. So they, they were one of the largest groups probably that, that felt the control or the prohibition of liquor was, was you know, was not right. And, uh, but then by this time, society in general was starting to change its mind too. Not just returned soldiers or veterans, but society in general was, was changing. And people felt that there was a, a place for liquor in society. That's one reason. Another reason is money. The government realized that there was a big, big uh, source of revenue from liquor sales if it was controlled, if they controlled it, let's put it that way because it was increasingly more difficult to control it the way it was. Uh, it was practically impossible in some cases to control uh, the use of liquor. So they thought, well, let's get in on the act, basically, and uh, we'll control the, the use and sale of liquor, and we will make the profit from selling it. Prohibition ended in 1948. However, you could still only buy a specified amount of alcohol. It wasn't until 1960 that the purchase limit was taken away. Even when prohibition was done, bootleg bars and speakeasies were still common for decades. In fact, they were a secret everyone knew about. It wasn't until 2005 that the government cracked down on illegal bars and bootleggers. Dutch talked about the end of the speakeasy and shared a story about one notorious bootlegger. When they changed the law, I, th I think it was $5,000. I, I could be wrong on that, but I think it went from being like, like $100 or $200 fine which you just, you just wrote that into your business and you knew. And so when he was caught the first time, they, the cops went to him and said, the next time we come, we're going to have to, with the new law, we don't have a choice anymore. We're getting a lot of pressure from the town council and we're going to have to arrest you. Dutch didn't tell me this man's name in the particular story for privacy reasons, but maybe some listeners will know who he's talking about. His bootleg bar was one of the most popular ones in PEI. And he said, I don't care. He said, I'm not going to stop. I've been selling liquor since I was nine years old. I'm 90 years old now, and I'm not going to stop. So, so they, they, he, he was arrested. And he went 
into court and he stood before the judge and he and she said, I have to find you the, the it's this is the fine now, it's $5,000. He reached in his back pocket, he pulled out a lot of bills, he counted off $5,000 and slapped it down on the table and he said, I might as well give you $5,000 more because I'm going home to sell liquor. And they, she said, the judge was laughing. She's trying hard not to. And she said, look, we don't want your money now. We'll deal with this later. Take the other $5,000 with you. Don't sell any more liquor. He said, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. And he's, I don't think he is now. I think he's finally stopped. There are still a couple of bootleggers, very quiet, where you really have to know your way around. Although bootleg bars have been driven underground, you can now drink Island Moonshine legally. Ken Mill is part owner of Married View Distillery, and they're the creators of Straight Shine. Moonshine you can buy from them or at a local liquor store. One of the nice things down at the distillery is, is we call the retail area the Moonshine Confessional because we're getting these older guys and girls that are coming in, and they're as soon as they see the place and they look at the still, the first thing is, oh, what I could have done with one of them. And then you hear the stories of how things have gone well or how things didn't go well. So, it, you know, it's, it's great to hear those old, old stories. And, you know, and like I say, it's like a moonshine confessional when people come through the door. Although you can now legally buy moonshine, making your own is still an island tradition. Dutch, Clint, and Ken all said they know or used to know people who created shine. It's been this way for centuries. Prohibition didn't change that but it sure created a good story or two. I've uh, been, been lucky to taste uh, shine from the western end of the island and, and from the eastern end of the island, and it all depends on the moonshine maker, but for the most part, you'd have to look long and hard to find a bad batch of shine. I haven't been lucky enough to taste homemade shine on PEI, but I believe it's still around. Whether you hide it inside your barn, under a floorboard, or even tucked away in your kitchen cupboard, no amount of legislation can completely get rid of it. It's just human nature, which is another thing Dutch, Clint, and Ken all said. Even though prohibition was known as the noble experiment brought in with a lot of help from women, you can't change human habit. So think of that when you raise your glass tonight. Enjoy your beer and know that if you were born over 100 years ago, you might have had a tougher time finding a drink. The Hidden Island is a production by the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I had a ton of fun researching and putting it together. If you did enjoy it, find us on our social media or our website at peimuseum.ca. Thank you to the sponsors of our podcast, Nimrods and Upstreet Brewing. I'd also like to send out some thank yous to everyone involved in this episode. Heidi, Dutch, Clint, and Ken, thanks for giving your time. Shout out to Adam Glant, who's responsible for our intro music and to explore more water sports in Charlottetown, who let me record the sound of their boat. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of The Hidden Island.